following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, it is the first Sunday of 2016. Liturgically speaking, we are still in the season of Christmas tide. Uh, but I want to talk today about a new year. And I wonder how many of you uh, made any New Year's resolutions this year. Yeah, I see some hands for New Year's resolutions. How many of you have already broken a New Year's resolution this year? <laughs> All right, I see some hands. How many of you are far too cool for New Year's resolutions? <laughs> I see a lot of hands. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I've never made a secret of the fact that I'm not crazy about New Year's resolutions myself because, I, because they're binary. Um, which means that they're either on or they're off. And it's only January 3rd, and some of us have already ruined the whole year by breaking a New Year's resolution. And I prefer to focus instead on what I would call just a simple goal that gives you kind of an incline to get to it, rather than trying to turn it all the way on and leave it on for the whole year. But that being said, maybe it's semantics, and uh, it's undeniable that at this time of year, it makes sense to think about Stuff we want to change, things we want to do better at, things we want to do more of or less of, that's normal. And it goes for all areas of life, and it certainly includes the life of faith. And for those of us who are faithful people, who are Christians, um, there's some common ones that I hear people trying to do related to to spirituality and and faith every year. Um, How many have ever made a resolution that you want to pray more often? And I've made that resolution. How many of you have ever made the resolution that you want to go to church more often? I never struggle with this one. Uh, I have nearly perfect church attendance. Um, I'm sometimes a little late to the, to the platform, but I'm always here on Sundays. How about one of the big ones? Have you ever made the resolution that you want to read your Bible more? We've all, all of us who... who think the Bible's important in any way, uh, have made that resolution one time or another, whether it was a New Year's resolution or it was a June resolution. It's the other thing about resolutions, it gives you just one time a year to do it. I think you should be doing self-improvement at all, all days of the year. You know, pick the day and start, it's, that's what I say. But we've all wanted to read our Bibles more, but that there are some barriers to that, aren't there? Why is it hard to read the Bible more? Well, maybe it's hard to understand. Maybe it's boring in places. Maybe it's actually kind of offensive to our ears in some places. Maybe we think, well, I don't know about the rest of the Bible, but the part I'm reading right now seems fairly irrelevant to my life as a 21st century American. Well, it may surprise you, or maybe it won't, Um, probably depends how many times you've heard me talk (laughs) and for how long, that I agree with all of those challenges. Like all of those criticisms, I feel them too, at least sometimes. And yet, I want to tell you that I love the Bible. I really love it with all of my being as as a Christian, as a human being. Especially lately, I have been amazed at the depth, the richness, the connections from one part of it to another the many ways that the text interprets itself, and most of all, the way that God's big story, which is revealed in Scripture, unfolds as the story proceeds and actually 
calls us and invites us to be part of that big, grand story. But I know it's hard. And sometimes uh, you, you can't see the forest for the trees, right? You can't get that big picture because the thing that you're reading right now is hard to understand or boring or possibly offensive or it seems irrelevant. I understand all of those things. I feel you. But I think that I can address them at least a little bit with one rule, one key, if you will. If we were at the bottom of a website, it would say one weird trick for, <laughs> for getting rid of Bible flab. <laughs> no. No, I don't want to, I mean, that's being silly, but I, I don't want to give the impression that I think this is a cure-all. I don't actually think it's a cure-all, but I do think it's a help-some, <laughs> right? Which, you know, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. What this, what this rule or this key will do, I hope, is give you what you might think of as a scaffolding, a place to stand where you can work on what you're working on for stretches of time, <laughs> where you can reach things a little bit easier or better. Where you can get a better angle on things. Are you ready for the one rule? You might have heard me say it before, but here it is. The Bible is a library. Okay. You like libraries? I love libraries. I went most of my adult life, never really went to the library much. Then I had kids, and I was like, ah, now I get it. <laughs> We're going to get these books out, they're going to read them four times and love them, and then we're going to return them, <laughs> because they never want to read it more than four times anyway. Um, well, Abel's giving me the stink eye right now, but he, this is for you, it was when you were younger, beloved son, when you were younger. <laughs> what is a library? Well, a library is a collection of many books written at different times by different authors, which means they had different perspectives, different attitudes, different cultural settings, different biases, different commitments, written for different reasons to different audiences. This is one of the things that's wonderful about a library. There is so much diversity. You can go in and read about science or religion or history. You can read fiction. You can read nonfiction. You can read kids' books. You can read adults' books. You can read books in all kinds of different languages. A library is a collection of books written at different times by different authors with different commitments and biases for different reasons to different audiences. That's what a library is, and that is also what the Bible is. And I think that understanding that the Bible is a library rather than a single monolithic book is a key for embracing it more fully, for loving it more deeply, and for allowing it to become authoritative and formational in our lives. For me, at least, I hope this will translate to you, but for me, at least, knowing that there is this wide range of genres and authors and contexts to the words, all of which we say together make up Holy Scripture, that helps me, it helps me to process some of the more troubling sections of the Bible. But even more than that, what it does is it gives me a much deeper appreciation for the richness 
of our sacred text. I often think about how I would do things if I were God, right? I think if I were God, I would not have done it this way. I would not have inspired all this weirdness from all kinds of different places and times and people to be the thing. I would have done something quite a bit more clear, (laughs) quite a bit more uh, comprehensible. (laughs) But I love the way it happened. And so what I want to do in the little bit of time that we have left is uh, touch on just a few of the categories of literature, some of the genres, some of the sections that are in the Bible, um, which will be very familiar to many, if not most of you, but for some of you may be entirely new to think about these things in sections. I don't know. But most importantly, I want to think about each one, how each one of these little sections can be formational for you this year if you have decided that you want to read Scripture more often. And perhaps, I don't know, maybe we will get lucky and after hearing this, you will be inspired to read more Scripture this year, even if you didn't come into the room this morning having already made that decision for yourself. So what I want to do is take you through a few sections of the Bible and how they can, how they can be formative for us. What you can do as you read them that might make them more formational for you. All right, so the first one is I want to encourage you to trust the Proverbs. Um, the Proverbs is a book of the Bible. Right? contains wisdom sayings. And the thing that you must absolutely understand about the Proverbs, if you are ever going to love them, is to realize that they are not promises. The writings in the book of Proverbs are not promises. They are not guarantees. They are Proverbs, their wisdom sayings, they aim to describe the world, how it works, usually. Right. Let me uh, give you an example. That uh, uh, It's a very famous proverb that has caused many a parent to despair. And I'm going to quote it in the King James Version, because that's the version that you sometimes hear quoted, and the version that I memorized. And some of you will be able to say this with me. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Uh, This is King James English. This goes for daughters, too. Now, if that verse of the Bible was ever intended to be a promise or a guarantee, it would follow that any wayward child is the result of failed parenting. Now, and it's not just because as a parent, I, I don't want that to be true. <laughs> that I think that's not how it's meant to be read at all. It's meant to be read like, this is how it usually works. <laughs> so you should act this way. Uh, let me give you one more example. It's actually two examples, but these are two proverbs that are right next to each other in chapter 24. All right? Now listen carefully to what these two proverbs say. Do not answer fools according to their folly, or you will be a fool yourself. Answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own eyes. These two verses tell you to do two different things which are mutually exclusive. They are, in fact, opposites of each other. Do not answer fools according to their folly. Answer fools according to their folly. 
I don't mean to, I don't have any intention of interpreting those particular verses right now. I just read them to you because it's, I am intending to prove my point. These are not intended to be promises. This is not a, uh, a, a promise machine, a guarantee box that, you know, if you do this and this and this, you will get this and this result every time. No, no, no. What it's trying to say is if you do this and this and this, you will get this result most of the time. Uh, which is less reassuring, isn't it? Don't we wish that we had a book of the Bible that had a guarantee machine that you could act in this way and get this result every time? A lot of us think that that's what the whole Bible is. One of my goals this morning is to tell you that's not the case. To disabuse you of that notion, you might say. So they're not promises, but what they are is reliable predictors of how life will go. They are therefore, in my opinion, trustworthy. And so let me say to you, as you are trying to read more scripture this year, I encourage you to trust the Proverbs, not because it will provide you with your every wish, not because it will give you a 100% success rate in whatever you try to do, but because they are reliable predictors of how life will go, especially the life of faith. Okay? So trust the Proverbs. Here's the second one. I want to encourage you to pray the Psalms. Not read the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. Um, I use a prayer book that, that makes quite heavy use of the Psalms uh, to guide my own life of prayer. And I could go into the personal reasons why I've made that decision for myself, but I don't really want to right now. I'll tell you about it some other time. But I will tell you what I like about it. What I like about it is that the Psalms contain uh, words written by faithful people that express the entire range of human emotion. The good, the bad, and sometimes, honestly, the very, very ugly. And how beautiful it is that this sacred text, this library that we have been given, includes a whole section of songs that express every emotion we could come up with. It tells me that God is okay with our honesty. And you can use the Psalms as a guide for your prayer life. I don't actually like that term prayer life. I just used it anyway. But if your life of prayer is guided by the Psalms, you will be guided through not only the range of human emotion and experience, but very importantly, how people, how faithful people have expressed that in a faithful context. Now once again, you have to remember what type of literature this isn't. Just as the Psalms, or just as the Proverbs are not a, a, a promise book, the Psalms are not really a theological book. They're not a theology book. They're theological, but they are not theology most of the time. Right? I don't want to go too far down that road. But the point is, as you pray these psalms, sometimes you're going to like the words you're praying, and sometimes you're not going to like it, but you will find yourself in those words. Let me give you a few examples. These are just three of the verses that I prayed this morning using that prayer book that I mentioned a minute ago. And I'm absolutely okay with, uh, with baby noise in the sanctuary, by the way. So you can have the baby or take the baby. It's okay. 
Uh, and that goes for every one of you every Sunday, okay? They're part of our community too, so whatever works for you is okay. All right, here's one, very famous psalm. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. How many of you feel like you could make that prayer honestly right now? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I could pray that one in um, most minutes. How about this one? I am small and of little account, yet I do not forget your commandments. That one doesn't feel so good. I don't actually like the idea of being small. I don't want to be small. I want to be big. That's why I grew so tall. (laughs) Come to think of it, I'm not too crazy about commandments either. Do you see how praying this psalm can be formational for my life? Could it possibly be that maybe my soul needs my voice to say I am small and of little account once in a while? How about this one? You heard me say this at the beginning of the sermon. Let my mouth be full of your praise and glory all day long. That is a prayer for a pastor on a Sunday. It's also a prayer for every faithful person every day. So if you have ever felt like your prayers are dead and dry, that they are brittle and broken, that you repeat the same stuff over and over again, and that you repeat the same stuff over and over again, and you just repeat that stuff over and over again, first of all, don't beat yourself up so much. The most beautiful language woven into the most intricate and perfect prayer ever is still the noise of a clanging gong if you don't have love. That's also from the Bible. So stop beating yourself up about it. But if you want to improve at it, you should. And the way you do that is by praying the Psalms. Thirdly, I want to encourage you to live the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is a collection of Jesus' teachings. You can find it in Matthew 5 through 8. And because I want to begin with the end in mind here a little bit, this is what it says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after he is done. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Very brief word study. What is the root of the word authority? author. How does an author compare to a scribe? A scribe records and rewrites and copies over what has been written by whom? The author. So it's not just that he had authority in the sense that he could rule over them. He had authorship of the way that God wants the world to work. So when I say that we should live the Sermon on the Mount, what I mean is that we should take seriously that when Jesus redefines righteousness, which is what he does all through the Sermon on the Mount, he is doing it as the one who has authorship. That all the writings that had been written down before, which he says he's not abolishing, yes, we could do a long study on this concept, but all the stuff that had come before was the work of the scribes in some sense, right? Inspired by God, yes, etc., etc. Jesus is the author. And when he teaches, you had better listen. 
So when Jesus defines murder as just being angry with someone and calling them a fool, you had better listen. And when Jesus redefines adultery as simply desiring somebody, longing to take ownership of that body, you had better listen. And when he says it's not enough to love your neighbor, which, depending on the neighbor, is usually quite easy, but that in fact you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you had better listen. How many of you have prayed for ISIS today? How many of you have prayed for that horrible political candidate today? You like how I did that? <laughs> it's pretty good. Not my first rodeo. <laughs> I actually mentioned a political candidate by name uh, two weeks ago, I think it was, and I want you to know that uh, I will never endorse any political candidate from this pulpit, from this spot, okay? So if, if that sounded like that's what I was doing in that moment, understand that it was not and that you can know and rely on the fact that I will never do that. Ever. Okay? Jesus teaches how to fast, how to pray, how to give, how to trust. It's all there in the Sermon on the Mount. And you could very easily spend the rest of your life just reading those three chapters from the Gospel of Matthew and trying to apply them in your day-to-day life. Actually, that's what I'm saying you should do. (laughs) Do that. Read those chapters and try to apply them to your life. And keep doing that until you have finished successfully applying them to your life. You're going to die first. (laughs) But that's what I am telling you you should do. All right, next one. I want to encourage you as you try to read more scripture to believe the epistles. Now, what are the epistles? The epistles are the letters written by the, uh, the leaders of the church to the churches that were forming in the first century. Specifically, I want you to rejoice in one of the great central teachings of Christianity, which was emphasized very strongly in the Protestant Reformation, but which our Catholic brothers and sisters and Orthodox brothers and sisters also believe, which is that salvation comes not by the things that we do, but by the faith that we have. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Thanks be to God. Not the result of works. Why? so that no one may boast. I want you to believe that statement and comprehend it and apprehend it and own it. There's nothing you can do which will make you right in the eyes of God, ultimately. Which is discouraging for those of us who uh, have this rugged individualism that seems to be part of our Uh, shared cultural heritage in America because we want to fix everything ourselves. But it's very encouraging for those of us who are colossal screw-ups 
because the uh, converse is also true. Our salvation doesn't depend in either direction on what we are able to do. I also want you to believe another great teaching from the epistles. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, says the Apostle James, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. What? How are we to make sense of these two teachings? They're in the same library. <laughs> I was going to say they're in the same book, but that's, we're going for the library metaphor. How do we square that circle? Are we saved by faith? Or is faith without works dead? Well, the way I square the circle, perhaps this will be helpful to you, is that it comes down to your definition of what faith is. Faith, and what it's not, okay? Faith is not intellectual assent, all right? This is contrary to how many of us were raised. If we were raised in the church, we were taught that you are saved by faith, which means you are saved when you believe this particular list of doctrines that we like at this particular church. Saved by faith. Whether it's the Apostles' Creed, which we say a couple times a month at least, or whether it's one of those like 8,000-word statements of faith that you find at some churches which are much more doctrinal perhaps than we are, or anything in between. You have to assent intellectually. Your brain has to say yes to every one of these things on our list, then you're saved. That is not what it means to be saved by faith. I don't think so. Faith is having enough trust in Jesus that you do what he says. This is how uh, Abraham's faith was defined, right? Not only in the book of James, but also later in the book of Hebrews, right? Abraham had faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. But how is his faith evident? What is it that God asked of Abraham when he called Abraham, Bible nerds? What is the first word he said? Go! Go where? To the land I will show you. (laughs) And Abraham was like, "Mm, you have a GPS? Maybe, could you print out a Google map? Could you at least tell me the name of the town or the county? Which, which, which direction, God? As soon as you tell me, I'll go. No, he went. That's what faith is. It wasn't like he believed, you know, the, 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 the 613 Mosaic laws were all going to be binding for him. Like, none of that was, no. There was no list. There was a word, go, walk. And he did it. That's faith. So if that's what faith is, then you can see very easily how both of those statements in the epistles are true. And I want you to believe them both. I want you to believe that you are saved, not by being able to do everything right, but by faith in the grace of God expressed in his son Christ. Right? I also want you to believe that if you don't have any works to go along with your faith, that's probably not, there's probably not actually faith there. Right? 
Because faith without works is dead. Uh, by the way, this is also how Jesus himself defined faith. Do you know where he did that? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount? When he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and agrees with them, mm-mm. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and tells their friends about them, no. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And then it goes on to elaborate on that metaphor. If you hear the words and act on them, that is, by definition, what it means to have faith. And so I'm going to tell you to do something crazy and scary right now. This is the last thing I want you to do as you try to read Scripture more this year. What I want you to do is act on the resurrection. What do I mean by that? Well, let's try to put this all together. We've talked about trust. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about living it out. We've talked about believing it. We've talked about the fact that the life of faith is defined by the difference it makes in how you act I want you to take a minute, went a little bit longer than I intended, so just a minute, and answer the following question. How would I act differently if I believed that God raised Jesus from the dead? If I believed in the resurrection? We say that we believe in it when we recite the Apostles' Creed. Do we really believe it? Because if Jesus was dead and then he wasn't anymore, that pretty much changes everything. It adds a little bit of gravitas to the words that he said and the way that he lived and ministered and served. If we really believe that was true, how would it change the way we act? Which is, once again, what it means to have faith in that fact, in that truth. I'm actually going to give you a minute to think about this question. You might want to write down the answer. You might want to email it to a friend or a pastor. <laughs> you have a minute of silence to answer this question. hope that you will find a renewed joy in the scriptures this year. 
I hope that you will trust the Proverbs and pray the Psalms and live the Sermon on the Mount and believe the epistles. Most of all, I hope that you and I, I hope that our church together will find ways to act on the resurrection, resurrection, to demonstrate faith in what would be the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of the world. Because I think there's no limit to what can happen in our community, in our city, in our world if we act on the resurrection. So let me invite you now to come and receive this beauty into your bodies, this gracious gift from the Son of God who was crucified, was dead, was buried, who descended to the dead, and who was raised on the third day and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You may feel that your faith is very, very small and far too weak. If that's what you think, you are right and you are in the right place when you come to this table. This is food for your souls. This is the sacrament of the Lord. If you trust him enough to get up out of your seat and come here, then you have faith. And our open table is for you. You can tear off the bread, dip it in one of the cups. We have wine and juice. Choose the one that would be most appropriate for you and for your family. If you'd like to sit and think and observe, that's okay. If you feel you need prayer in this moment, there'll be a member of the prayer team here. Um, And you know what, today I'll I'll be here as well. I don't usually sit with the prayer team, but if you'd like to pray with me and have me pray for you, I would be happy to do that as we sing the next couple of songs together and as we take communion together. Um, The Spirit may be speaking to you in many different ways, um, and I can't hope to know all of the details of it, but I can encourage you to respond in trust and obedience. Our table is open. Thanks be to God. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.